If you'll join me, we will now read today's scripture reading from Hebrews 13, verses 15 through 19. In our pew Bibles, we're on page 1010. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. For such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. The uh, last study in Hebrews. Then we'll be heading to uh, our Advent series. And then um, after that Advent series, I'm not sure, something in the Old Testament. So in this closing uh, study of the book of Hebrews, wanting to point out some of the privileges and responsibilities that we have with our relationship with Jesus Christ, that through Jesus Christ, we now have these privileges that we didn't have before, and these privileges aren't driven by feelings, because as you and I know, feelings come and go. They're not a, a reliable way to go about life, but it's actually just driven by our relationship, our connection, our communion with God. And as we are directed by the Word of God, sustained by the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives, and called to abiding faith to fulfill the privileges we have in our walk with Christ, this is all done as an expression in how we live our life. So in these responsibilities that we have in how we live, uh, because we belong to Christ, there are these ways that we identify with Christ and, and One of those ways is found in verse 13. So let's go back a couple verses to verse 13, and it reads this. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. This is um, quite challenging to to read because the, the call is for us to go to Jesus outside, which is where we leave our comforts, where we become vulnerable. And that's where we will actually face these privileges and encounter these privileges and the privileges disgrace. So this is not a very good selling point for Christianity, but this is actually the truth of it all. For us to go outside the gate, outside of the camp, to identify with Jesus Christ. And that is the great privilege in identifying with Christ. And that that is where these demands will be placed on us, where there will be disgrace for us to face outside of the camp, outside of the gate. And this is the realistic expectation of the Christian. For someone to say, you know, you give your life to Christ and then everything just gets better. Everything just gets easier. A lot of you know that that's not true. That, that, that's just simply not true. Of course it can uh, of course, you've read of, read of stories, you've heard of conversations, you've, you've met people where, yeah, I gave my life to Christ and everything changed and everything got better and everything got easier and things like that. But I would say for your average person that is someone you know, 
this is not the guarantee. It's not like all your problems just disappear the day that you give your life to Christ. It's not like all your relationships get to rest- restoration and reconciled and, and then the money problems you have disappeared. Like, it's not like a genie. The thing that is guaranteed is found in verses 5 and 6 where God says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. That's guaranteed. That you get. And then in verse 6, so that we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? And so this is the privilege of identifying with Christ, to know he's never going to leave me or forsake me. I don't have to live in fear. He's my helper. The Lord's my helper. I don't have to live in fear anymore. And so those are the things that are guaranteed, not the other stuff where like problems go away, money's solved, all these relationships, all this kind of stuff. And so with this privilege comes responsibilities. And we're going to take a look at these responsibilities in verses 15 through 17. The first one is a spiritual responsibility that we have in respect to God. So verse 15 through him, Jesus, through Jesus, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledges his name. Now the Jews were very, very familiar with this idea of sacrifice and how sacrifice was essential to address sin in their life. That at the Day of Atonement, the high priest enters the Holy of Holies with the sacrifices of sin for the people. And this all pointed to the great sacrifice in the future. And for Christians, this great sacrifice came in the form of Jesus Christ, who bore our sins on the cross, outside of the camp, outside of the gate. And this has been addressed in this letter to the Hebrews and can be found in verses such as chapter 10, verse 12, which reads, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Now this is where Jesus atoned for the sins of his people. It was no longer this high priest entering into the Holy of Holies, that Jesus Christ did this once and for all. In the Old Testament scriptures, the sacrifices weren't just propitiatory, meaning that they just weren't, they weren't just for sins, that they weren't just expiatory offerings, just for sins, that they were also dedicatory sacrifices, meaning that they didn't address sin, that they, they were just things of dedication, that there was an offering of things, such as for Thanksgiving, which we all celebrated this past Thursday, I think, maybe, maybe you didn't. But that it was a dedicatory sacrifice like that of thanksgiving to show gratitude to God for accepting those propitiatory sacrifices. So we see a spiritual responsibility in offering up a sacrifice of praise, dedicatory, an offering like thanksgiving, to God. And so for the Christian, we don't bring like a goat, a sheep, or oxen, or, or something like that. What we bring is actually something much, much more valuable. And the offering is you, me. We offer ourselves to God. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. What is our spiritual responsibility to God? It is to bring my life 
as a continual offering up to God in a way similar to how a Jew would bring an ox or a sheep or a goat as an expression of gratitude for what God has already done and will be doing. And we don't have a greater sacrifice to offer God than ourselves, do we? This is the greatest sacrifice that we can ever offer to God is ourselves. And so whatever we offer of ourselves isn't even as good of a sacrifice. So for example, God, I give you my money, or I give you my career, or I give you my relationships. Those are things just of yourself, but those particular things aren't enough. It is you, your entire being, all of you, mind, soul, spirit, heart, acknowledging God for who God is, and offering this sacrifice of praise is what the Lord desires. The sacrifice of praise is offered only through Jesus, according to verse 15. The same Jesus who experienced this disgrace outside of the wall, outside of the camp, whom we are to go to, ident to identify with, that through him who is outside, it is emphasized that through him, Jesus, because this belief that all roads lead to heaven, all roads lead to peace with God, that is not true according to the word of God, according to the scriptures. That heaven is only accessible through Jesus, who cleansed us with his blood, that sacrifice, that Jewish picture of the Holy of Holies offering the blood sacrifice, but this is Jesus himself once and for all, who suffered in our place, who paid our price, who offered us the way to approach God, who gave access to God only through his holy sacrifice. And no one else could do these things which would be acceptable by a holy God. It is only through Jesus, as according to verse 15, through him. When people say that is, you know, all roads lead to heaven or there's multiple ways, ask Jesus that. Because do you think that he would have gone through everything that the Gospels have recorded to at the end of his life as he's suffering on the cross that he'd say like, you're, you guys are right. All roads lead to him. I really don't have to be here. You know, I, I, you're right. And I don't have to raise from the grave. I don't have to resurrect in three days. You're, you're right. You can just do whatever you want. It's exclusive in that way that Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And this is a very offensive thing to say in a very pluralistic world that we live in. But this is the scripture, and I can only tell you by the authority of the scripture, it is not by my own. That the scriptures never give that as an option for something else. It is by Christ. Now you look back to verse 15 there's this phrase there, and it says, continually offer. And this is really, really important. You know, sometimes at church, um, they're not quite here yet, but we have these uh, people who come who are called Christers. And Christers are those who come at Christmas and at Easter. Right? And so um, they're not here yet. They will be here in a few weeks. The Christers will be here in a few weeks. I love Christers. I, I love that they at least want to come to church those two times of the year. And then there are other people who come to church every week. Every week. They're, they're here every week. But then you look at this phrase and it says, continually offer. Which means, not the Christer, and not even the 52 time a week person that comes to church every week. 
that this is continually, all the time, that moment by moment we offer ourselves to God every moment of our lives. Now, for, for some people, this might actually be quite daunting to think, like, all the time? Like, I'm at church every week already, and I have to offer my church, myself all the time? But the thing is, I, I find this actually quite liberating. Because think about this. You don't have to be in a particular building. You don't have to have a particular person involved in your worship. You don't have to be at a store to go buy something to offer sacrifice. You bring yourself wherever you are, however you are, with whomever you're with. I mean, that's so freeing. And then this entire being that we bring in the presence of God is interwoven in this communion with God, and that's worship. Moment by moment, continually. Not just when we feel like it, but continually. Then we move to the second responsibility in verse 16. It reads, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. And so here we have a, a moral responsibility to people, to, to others. And so the privilege we have in identifying with Jesus Christ has these responsibilities. The first one, to God, and that we continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. We offer our entire selves to God. And then the second responsibility to other people in that we, we love others with our deeds, with our actions. 1 John chapter 3, verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now the Jewish people also understood this really well in addition to understanding sacrifices. They understood generosity. They understood hospitality hospitality. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 14, starting in verse 28. At the end of every three years, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in the same year and lay it up within your own towns. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow who are within your town shall come and eat and be filled, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands that you do. God didn't bless us with all of our stuff so that we just have more stuff. That we just hoard all of this stuff for ourselves, for our family, and for our friends. That is not why. It's not for our own recognition. It's not for our own fame. It's not for us to just have more so that we can be more comfortable and just have more. God blesses us so that we can use it. So that we can have it and bless others with it. To do good with it. To do good with what we have been given. We are to be, as Titus chapter 2 verse 14 instructs us, to be zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. And then if you jump one chapter over in Titus chapter 3, it reads this in verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things. Insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Doing good. Sharing what we have. Sacrificing ourselves for the good of others is a moral responsibility to have towards other people. Caring for people. 
supporting people, selflessly loving people is really pleasing to God. Now this doesn't earn us anything with God because Jesus paid all of that on the cross. But this pleases God. And if you've ever wondered what pleases God, here it is. We have a privilege identifying with Jesus Christ in his disgrace outside of the camp, outside of the gates, where he stepped down from heaven into our world, making himself vulnerable, leaving his comforts for our sake. And we identify with Jesus in this, and in our identification with him with this, we then have these responsibilities. The first one, a spiritual responsibility in respect to God, verse 15. The second one, a moral responsibility that we have towards one another, verse 16. And then here's a third one, this ecclesiastical responsibility with respect to Christian leaders or people who have watch over people's souls. Verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. These are the, the churchy responsibilities, right? And uh, churchy, Nacho Libre is actually a Christmas movie in our house. I don't know how it became that, but Elf and Nacho Libre are the Christmas movies of our, I don't know why. December 1st comes around, kids are like, Nacho Libre, Elf, and so that's tonight, those are our movies. Strange, I know, I don't know why, but anyway. People who are watching over the church, shepherds, and this is not people who are doing it in such an authoritative way, and they're not being authoritative or authoritarian in in their voice, but in a watchman type of way. So the picture is, that you have these towers and the city walls and you have watchmen on the walls. And they are looking at what's happening outside of the walls and they are looking at what's happening inside of the walls and they signal when there's a danger. Outside of the walls, you come in and the walls protect. Inside of the walls, there's a fire. There's something going on. There's a riot, whatever. Go, go get protection. Either go outside of the walls or go into your homes. And they announce these things. They, they let the citizens know of the city to, to be careful We have responsibility to pay attention for you. We have a a, a view that we have these purposes that that we were placed here by the king or whoever was placing them there to, to have this purpose of looking out at what's going on. Now the purpose of them being up there isn't so that they have a better view, so that they can bask in the sun and then break out some pizzas and just kind of hang out and just live a life of luxury up there with a nice view and just kind of kick back. Their purpose is to watch out for dangers outside of the wall and inside of the wall. That they weren't there to just enjoy. Their purpose is to watch. So when a leader is called to that place of watching, paying attention to what's happening inside of the walls or outside of the walls, that's their purpose. That's what they're called to do. That's what they're told to do. And so... We look at Acts chapter 20, and look at Acts 20, and and reads this, starting in verse 28. 
Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So those watchmen are up there. And what is Acts saying? Dangers are actually more dangerous inside than they are outside. And so these leaders are to be watchful, looking for things that may be dangerous. And these leaders also give an account for what they are doing. Look at that verse there again. That they will be held accountable and responsible for the flock to God. And as the leaders will be held responsible for their watchfulness, we we have to ask ourselves, those under leadership, how have we responded to their watchfulness? So the the guy on the watchtower says a certain thing. Do we just say, whatever, whatever. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go inside. I'm not going to go in the walls. I'm not going to go in my house. I'm not, going to, I'm not listening to that guy. He just shouts weird stuff all the time. I'm going to ignore him. Or is there a willingness to listen, knowing that that's why they were placed up there? They're watching. They're watching while, while I get to do my other stuff and concentrate on the stuff that I need to do. They're watching out. That's their job. And so I'm going to listen because that's their job. A willingness to listen. A willingness to seek the Lord in how we can grow. And can we learn together what God has for us? And, and where do we learn from? It's the Word of God. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, it reads, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the Word of God. Meaning the leaders who don't speak the Word of God to you, you don't have to remember them. Don't remember them. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. So back to the spoke to you the word of God. You notice that the authority of the leader is when the leader speaks from the word of God. It isn't when they speak out of their opinion or out of their ideas or anything coming from their own personal wisdom. That the parameters of what a leader speaks is bound by the word of God. That the authority isn't in the leader him or herself, that it's in the word of God. That the Christian leader does not know everything. That watch person on the wall doesn't know everything. They know how to watch. But if you ask them, like, well, what should I do in this situation? They don't know all the time. They're a watch person. Right? So the the Christian leader needs to seek understanding from the word of God and speak from the authority of the scriptures, not the opinions of the culture or the latest fad, or politics, or a personal agenda. But the things of God based on the authority of God. And not everything the Christian leader says is gospel. Only the gospel is gospel that they say based on the word of God. And just the stuff that is based on the word of God. And we're all in submission to the word of God together. It's not just this blind obedience or submission to this watch person. Right? If that watch person's crazy, they got to be removed. If they're just like spurting out stuff that doesn't make any sense and it's nuts, they got to be removed. We only obey and submit to what's in the Word of God. 
Now the second part of verse 17 is really practical. It says, let them do this with joy and not with groaning. So the question, do we make these watch people, these leaders, joyful or do we make them groan? And leaders experience both. But there's only one of those experiences that would be advantageous to the people, to the church. And so something to ask ourselves is, how do we influence our leaders? Do we influence them towards joy or towards groaning? Towards pleasure or towards burden? And it's the same with any relationship that you're in, really. Right? Like your marriage. Do you make your spouse joyful or do you make them groan? Your family. It's Thanksgiving this past week. It's Christmas. When you get that email or text or call, is it... My mom's calling. She's going to invite me over. Or it's like, man, my mom's calling. Is it a joy or is it a burden? And it's the same thing with your friendships. It's the same thing with like cousins or aunts or uncles that call and invite you over. It's, it's, it's better to be in a joyful setting. And it's much less effective when there's a bunch of groaning in the relationship. And it just becomes a burden for you to go over for a Thanksgiving meal. It becomes a burden for you to go over for a Christmas celebration. Because you don't want to be there. Because it's just a bunch of groaning. It's a bunch of complaining. It's a bunch of all this stuff that's not fun. So do we make leaders joyful or groan? And so we read how leaders are to be watchful. That will be held accountable. And then we move to how leaders are to be humble. Verses 18 and 19. Pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. And we, so we read here that humble leadership desires prayers of others because we realize we need it. We really, really need it. And this is the first time that the author actually asks for something personally. And the writer here asks for prayer. And the specific prayers that are asked for are a clear conscience and to act honorably in all things. Those are some good prayer requests. Those are some great prayer requests. We also see how the writer of this letter wants to be restored to the recipients of this letter that they, that they want fellowship, that they desperately want prayer and they want fellowship. Then the author moves from requesting this prayer to offering a benediction, offering a prayer. And in this benediction is the summary of this entire letter. It might sound familiar to you. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. You may have noticed that this has been our benediction since we began the book of Hebrews, and we've been doing this for months now. And all the themes of this entire letter are summarized in this benediction. When we're looking at the nature of the lordship of Jesus, the blood of Jesus, the eternal covenant, doing good, doing his will, all of these things offered up in a prayer to the readers, and it all starts with this, God of peace. To acknowledge who God is and how God is the God of peace. 
We see God as the God of peace. How? By the blood of the eternal covenant. In that God is the one who initiated peace by reconciling people to himself. That while we were at enmity with God, God is the one who began this peace initiative with us. That God is the one who came to us with his peace accord. And he did all of this through the blood of the eternal covenant. Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 53. Here in verse 1. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised outside the gate, outside the camp. And rejected by men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid, hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds... We are healed. Now look at what the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. God is the God of peace, who initiated peace with us through the blood of Christ, his only son, whom he sent to bear our sins. He was born to bring peace, which is why we celebrate the birth of Christ at Christmas, which is when we enter into this Advent season, speaking of why Christ came, the God of peace. And then by raising Jesus from the dead, God gave proof that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted Easter. And so therefore you have the Christers who come for Christmas and Easter. Yes? And so that atonement of sin was accomplished. And if there was no resurrection, if there was no Easter, then there is no salvation from sin. But because of the death Jesus died and his resurrection, there is atonement for our sin. And all of this theology then points us to what we are to do with it in verse 21. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Equip you with everything good that you may do his will. In other words, may God make you complete. May God mend you, restore you, Put you in whatever condition that needs to be, that you need to be put in, that is needed, so that you can then repair what is broken, that you can mend, that you can heal, that you can restore people, that you can put them in a condition that they can do things for other people. And the one who knows peace like no other, because God saw peace play out throughout eternity. This powerful God, powerful one, whom we approach in our prayers, the God of peace who does the impossible with our lives, who, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, to repair whatever is broken in your life. 
asking that God, this God, to supply whatever's necessary while in our brokenness and in our imperfection that we are able to do those things. And it is that God who equips us with everything good that we may do his will. Isn't that incredible? I mean, oftentimes people approach this so far off that they, they're thinking, this is for somebody else. I can't do that. That, that must, you must mean somebody else. I'm just so messed up. I'm so broken. I, I, I don't have my things together in my life. I don't, I don't know what I even believe in certain things. Do you realize that this is real? That this isn't make-believe? That this isn't role-play? That this isn't a rehearsal that you're going through in your life? That what you're going through right now is real. And it's in real time. And we are live. This is live. What you and I are doing right now is real. And so the invitation is to get in this game. To participate. To, to do His will. That you have everything you need to do His will. All you need to do is ask. And He will equip you with everything good to do His will. And we know His will because it's found here in chapter 13. You can go back and listen to last week's message, but you, you go back to verse 1 to continue in brotherly love. Verse 2, to show hospitality to strangers and then so forth and so on. To remember the mistreated, to honor marriage, to be content. See, the will of God is not mysterious. It's, it's all laid out there for us. It's in His Word. We know what is pleasing in the sight of the Lord. And it's all through Jesus Christ. The letter started with Jesus. It talks about Jesus throughout the letter. It ends with Jesus. The one who is pointed to as to be superior to all angels. Superior to all prophets, even the greatest, Moses. Superior to all high priests, even Melchizedek, who Abraham, ble who was blessed, who Abraham was blessed by, which makes him the greater person. And, and in the book of Hebrews, it was pointing out all these relationships as to how Christ is superior to all of these beings. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. And the author of Hebrews is saying, listen to this. Listen to all of this. Listen to these instructions. Heed these instructions. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. And so the writer is saying, cherish this fellowship. You know, continuing that brotherly love, verse 1, he's, he's reiterating this. Love to be with God's people. Love to be with the church. Grace be with all of you. This is the last sentence of the letter. For us to stand in grace. In the letter of Hebrews, we have these great themes of revelation. These great themes of redemption. The great theology of Christology and soteriology and pneumatology and the, the picture of our Lord Jesus. And all of this is to turn our eyes to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we enter into an Advent season of pointing our eyes to you, thank you for 
Hebrews. And this letter that is exhorting us to listen to all of these instructions and to do your will. That you are indeed the one to equip us with all of these good things to do your will. So Lord, would you show this to us and give us the boldness and courage and the obedience and submission to walk forward in doing your will. Thank you for the church. I ask God for your blessings upon them. We are broken. We are imperfect. And yet, Lord, you love us so deeply. We thank you for that. We offer ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen.